continuing in our sermon series on Daniel chapter 6 today. All right. This is like classic Sunday school material. So for those of you who grew up in the church, I'm sure that um, the story will be very, very familiar to, to you. Um, but hopefully we'll get some, some new and uh, important um, wisdom and principles from this to be able to, to think about our daily lives as well today. So Daniel chapter 6, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer laws. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May Darius the king live forever. The royal administration, administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human during these next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be repealed. So Darius, King Darius, put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, uh, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the wind met as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because 
I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floors of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning... Um, desiring to know more about how we live in this world as people who belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. We belong to an invisible kingdom. Or perhaps we're here this morning, not because we necessarily feel that, that we believe or, or are part of this kingdom, but because we want to learn more. We want to know, uh, what, is this, what is this business about Christianity? What, who is Jesus? What is he doing? Uh, what is his kingdom about? And so, Lord, I pray that anybody who's here, whether... Um, the, the, the people that are here are, are firmly committed Christians, or whether there's uh, somebody that's here that's exploring and trying to learn more about Christianity, that this would be a message that speaks to their heart, which opens their eyes, and which gives us an encouragement, Lord, about, um, I guess, both the challenges that we face living in this world, but also the unique calling and, uh, and just the wonderful opportunity that um, that we have to show by our actions and show by our words that, that we belong to a place which is, which is just, it's so, it's so different from what we see around us. It's so much better, and it, it offers hope and it offers encouragement, Lord, amidst the challenges of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been going through this series on Daniel, we've been looking at the different situations that Daniel's and, and his friends face, and uh, they walk a very tight line, uh, a tight rope, because... Um, Daniel and his friends, they, they belong to a kingdom that is not visible. They, they belong, they're Jews. So their homeland is, uh, is Israel, is Jerusalem, uh, but yet they find themselves as exiles in uh, Babylon. And so uh, with being an, an exile in Babylon comes expectations. Uh, they have to serve, they have to work, they have to function in the society that really doesn't have a place for them. And, and yet the critical question for, for Daniel and his friends is, are they going to retain their their identity as believers in God? Are they going to remain true to, to, to who they really are? They're really Jews. And uh, there's constantly pressure to, uh, to bow down to the local gods, to acknowledge the power structures within Babylon. And yet every single part of their, their soul and their hearts uh, cries out and says, no, this is, this is not right. We don't serve Nebuchadnezzar. We don't serve Babylon. We serve the one true God. And we're not going to bow to these idols. We're not going to pray to false gods. We're only going to pray to the one true God. And so the question is, you know, how are they going to how are they going to manage the the expectations that come with on the one hand being in the world, uh, and on the other hand belonging to the kingdom of God. 
And this is a, a very important um, situation for us to think about for those of you who are, are here in this room. And I think you actually face these situations perhaps more than I do. Because as I've said before, you know, as a pastor, it's easy for me to, to be on God's side because it's expected of me to, to preach and to pray and to read my Bible. And if I didn't do those things, you'd be like, get this guy out of here. So, so those, those things are expected of me. But you guys, you know, you're in the real world and you're in relationships and you have coworkers and you have fellow students that you work with. And uh, being in the real world is a much different situation. It's much more of a balancing act, I think, for, for many of us trying to, to figure out out, you know, uh, how do I be true to my faith, but at the same time do what's expected of me in my workplace and fulfill the obligations that people put on me, especially when some of those obligations might might be in contrast to what what faith would require of us or what scripture would require of us. So Daniel is a fascinating character, and if any of you are professional or you're in the work environment, um, I, I would I would recommend you make Daniel your hero. You study his life. You learn as much as you can about Daniel because there's just so much that that Daniel understands, and he's so wise. And what Daniel reveals is that it's possible to be deeply, deeply committed to God, but at the same time, uh, and, and to be uncompromising, to be uncompromising in faith, completely. Um, have strong boundaries when it comes to worship, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to, to being right a disciple, but at the same time do amazingly well in the secular environment. And I think that that might be perhaps one of the myths that a lot of Christians believe is that you can't do both. You, you can't be a faithful Christian and be um, uh, effective and successful in the workplace at the same time. And so if that's what you think, then just read Daniel, because it's clearly not the case. Because at every single point where Daniel finds himself in conflict with the authorities, God comes in and delivers him. And even though Daniel offends people sometimes by not being willing to worship what the, what the Babylonians worship, and even though people are taken aback by that, at the end of the day, in every single episode that we've been seeing, uh, God blesses him and accelerates his career. To the point where Daniel is doing so well in his career that his peers and his colleagues who he works with are so jealous uh, that they want to they want to see Daniel die uh, is how is how well he does. Okay, so so that idea that you can't do both is a myth. Now Daniel in this passage he he reveals something which I think is a a unique contrast that he embodies, which is this: he has a low view of his boss, but he has a high view of his job. He has a low view of his boss, but a high view of his job. When I mean Daniel has a low view of his boss, what I mean is not that he doesn't love his boss or that he doesn't respect his boss, but he does not put his, his earthly master on a pedestal. He doesn't equate uh, uh, Darius in this situation. He does not equate Darius with being a god. He does not give to Darius power over his life. He's very clear. Right? I won't pray to Darius. I won't worship Darius. I won't bow to any, any statue. Right? I, I have my one true God. So even while Dar uh, Daniel exhibits a low view of his, of his master, he has a high view of his job. And so that's what's recognized about, about Daniel is that even though he doesn't put his master on his pedestal, his job performance, like on a purely, on a purely practical level, right, surpasses uh, his co-workers. It's clearly evident that he's wiser and he's uh, more talented and he, and he simply outperforms his co-workers. And so that's a, that's a unique contrast, isn't it? Because, you know, I think, I think that a lot of us, we have it exactly backwards. 
we have an over, overly high view of our earthly authority, our earthly masters, but we have a low view of our work. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people, um, they put their, their boss on a pedestal and they, they almost see their, their boss as being like a godlike figure in their life that has the power over your life, the power to make or break you, the power to accelerate your career or destroy your career, the, the, the power to give you a pay raise or, the, or to give you a pay cut or to, to fire you. And so, uh, the, we, we, you know, a lot of people, we assign the kind of godlike status to our earthly masters. But the thing is, at the end of the day, we don't really, we don't really love them, even those of us, I think, who are working hard in the in the secular environment, right? We're, we're, we're working hard to impress our boss, to win our bosses over. Why? Because of what we can get from them. And so you see that very clearly, uh, that that the, the advisors, the governors who come to Darius supposedly because they're trying to help him and they want to honor him, they, honor him, they, they actually have an ulterior motive, and they're completely motivated by self-interest. Uh, they're, they're just doing it. This whole, you know, Darius, let everybody worship you and pray to you alone for, for 30 days. <laughs> that's not a good idea. That never was a good idea. That, that's a bad idea. I, why does Darius go along with it? I mean, it, it's a little bit unclear. I, th I think probably it's one of those things where he's just like, yeah, let me, let me just sign off on this. I, I don't have time. I'm busy. If you think that's a good idea, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll go with it. But like, he immediately regrets doing it. I mean, if you think about it for even two seconds, do you really want to be responsible for answering the prayers of an entire nation? I mean, nobody wants that kind of pressure. But, but he goes along with it because he trusts these advisors. The advisors don't have Darius's best interest at heart. They're only motivated by their own uh, greed and jealousy uh, of Daniel. Now, Daniel is interesting in the fact that uh, he is not at all motivated to please or impress anybody, and yet his job performance far exceeds anybody else. Right? Isn't that, isn't that interesting? That the one person who has no interest in trying to brown nose, in, try, in trying to impress, win over the supreme authority, is the one at the end of the day that is the most trusted and the most relied upon uh, and does the best. Think about that. Think about that. That in your, in your, if you apply that to your work situations, that the way that you get ahead is not by trying to please people. The way that you do well in your job, whether you're at school or in the workplace, it doesn't matter. But, but that the way you, 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 you accelerate and see blessing is not by trying to win over people, not trying to impress people, but simply being faithful to God and doing your work, not to try to impress people, but to do your work in such a way that it honors God. And so, in a sense, Daniel is already embodying what is, what is spoken about in the New Testament. Um, this is what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse, verse 22, uh, 22 through 24. Workers, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So that, that's Daniel. Uh, that, that's his approach to earthly authority. That, that's how he sees his job as an opportunity to, to demonstrate character, to demonstrate faithfulness and loyalty to the one true God. He's uncompromising, highly valued, highly sought after, and uh, promoted within his career. So uh, Daniel's colleagues uh, are, are, a are a different story, right? They're, they're a different yeah, they, they present a little bit of a problem for Daniel. So, so they see Daniel doing as well as, he, as he's doing, and uh, there's an extreme sort of sense of competition, and they're jealous by the fact that Daniel is doing so well, and so they come after him. 
And you know, I think probably for those of you who like live in New York and you worked in New York, one one of the things that I've heard is that the the competitive atmosphere in New York is just intense. And this is true whether you're in grad school at NYU or whether you're you know working in the corporate world. That it is very very cutthroat, and uh, that there is a um, just a lot of competition and a lot of comparing and, and a lot of measuring my success in life and my success in career by saying how am I by measuring myself up, up against my my coworkers um, and my 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 colleagues. Um, Daniel would say, and here's the interesting thing about Daniel. Do you think Daniel is aware of how he's doing as compared to the other governors and satraps and, and whatnot? Do you think he's uh, that he's paying his attention to this? So some some say no. So actually, I, I think he is aware. I, I think he's aware that to a certain extent, he does have to measure up when compared to his coworkers. The reason I say that is because in Daniel chapter one. Um, do you remember when there's that situation where Daniel says, I don't want to eat the king's food or drink the king's wine, just give us vegetables. And he says, in 10 days, what I want you to do is bring us back in and then compare how we look to the other the other exiled trainees and see how we're doing. So I think Daniel's very wise. He's very smart. He, he knows that um, that to a certain extent, you know, that he, he can't be oblivious to the degree to which... Um, his performance measures up against the other people that he's working with. But I would say that for Daniel, it's certainly not his preoccupation. He's not obsessed with it. He's not thinking about it. And he's also not measuring his own worth and his own value by what we typically do, which is to say that we're happy with our home and our status and our income if we feel like we're doing better than other people. But oftentimes, if we're being totally honest, that, that we feel unhappy or discouraged if we see that other people who especially are you know our same age Maybe their kids are a little bit more successful. They're going to you know colleges that have a little bit of a, of a better name, and uh, their their home is a little bit bigger than mine. I'll tell you, I'll be totally honest. When I was an intern uh, in uh, my my fourth year of seminary, I was an intern in New Jersey, and my wife and I moved to New York. Uh, sorry, we moved to New Jersey, and uh, we had this fifteen hundred dollar apartment. It was the second floor of this. Um, of this house that was right next to church. It was great. It was it was beautiful. We loved it. But then every now and then the pastor would have us over to his home. And the pastor, uh, the parsonage that the church had set up, there were some builders in the congregation. They made the parsonage really nice. I mean, it was pretty. It was gorgeous. And it was huge. And they had a, their, their, their garden. And I remember even as an intern, kind of like, you know, like, that's not fair. Like, how come here I am living in this tiny apartment and he's, you know, he's, he's living in this nice big house. I was thinking that as an intern. So I'm just being honest with you. Like, isn't, isn't there that, that human aspect where it's like, we want to be successful, but really we just want to be a little bit more successful than, than the other guy. And, you know, the thing with that is, and, and scripture clearly, clearly teaches, uh, teaches against measuring your, your own success and how well you're doing by comparing yourself to other people. These are what Daniel's colleagues are doing. Daniel will never do this. And scripture says not to do that. And the, it, it's foolish on a, on a couple of different levels. Um, but I think the first level, the first thing to recognize is that every single person's situation is unique. So why compare yourself to somebody else? You know, they're coming at life. They're coming from a unique situation. There might be factors that you don't know anything about. Have any of you heard of the whole phenomenon of the dad bod? We know what a dad bod is, right? I mean, you're looking at a dad bod right here, okay? 
this is what this is what happens when you have three kids. That you just don't have the time to to exercise and be hitting up the gym for two hours a day, and uh, you know you don't have the time to be running marathons, thirteen mile, you know, thirteen miles on the weekend, preparing for marathons, and and the thing, but the society judges judges dads for having a dad bod. But it's like. You know, why are you judging me? Try having three kids, you know, try not getting any sleep. Try like having to do everything that is involved with, with having children and then to be able to put the focus and the energy uh, on keep on, on your physical physique. I mean, it's just it's just impossible. So, uh, you know, maybe Pastor Jesse's actually the exception to that because this he's got two kids and he's still, you know, he does uh, he does jujitsu and stuff like that. He's still like really buff and fit and trim. So. So I'm jealous of him, but you know the thing is, we, we all have a unique situation. So, so there's really no point in comparing. Um, the other the other thing is, I think on a more theological level, what Daniel would say is, there's no point in comparing because what you have to realize is that every single thing that you have is is what God has blessed you with. It's what God has decided you should have, and He's decided Julie should have this, and He's decided Yoko should have that, and. God has said, you know, I'm going to, this person's, I'm going to elevate this person and they're going to receive favor and they're going to do well in life. And then, uh, but I'm going to have, this person is going to have a more lowly station in life. And that's my, that's my provision for that person. You know, in, in Daniel chapter four, do you remember the, the entire, the entire issue with Nebuchadnezzar? You remember Nebuchadnezzar is walking on his roof and he looks down over his kingdom, and the, the sin that he commits is the sin of thinking that all his kingdom was something was what he achieved and uh, managed to build up by his own worth and his own value and his own strength. It's when he has that pride and he looks to himself and says, this is all me. I did all this. I conquered all this. I built all this. I'm great. I'm fantastic. Look what I've done. Boom! That's the moment where God says you're going to be a, you're going to be an animal for seven years. You're going to roam around like a beast because you need to learn something. And the lesson that God is at pains to show Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four is that God is Lord of all, and He gives the kingdoms of, of power to those whom He chooses. And so that's what Daniel is, you know wants Nebuchadnezzar, wants Darius, and wants all of us to realize: what you have is what God's given you. That's what God's given you. He's pleased to give you. He was pleased to give you two kids. He was pleased to give you no kids. He was pleased to give you a career and make hundreds of thousands of dollars. He was pleased to give you uh, a different kind of a job. It's his decision. It's his decision. It's by his power. It's by his, uh, by his decree. So if that's true, if that's true, then you see how from Daniel's perspective, for me to go around comparing my lot in life with, say, Pastor Sam... I can look at Pastor Sam and say, well, we're both pastors. How come Pastor Sam has this? How come Pastor Sam has that? Or maybe he's doing it about me. I don't know. Uh, but but it, it's foolish. It's foolish for me to compare myself with other pastors. You know what pastors always do? They compare whose church is bigger. You know, you meet another pastor, the very first thing they're going to ask you, this is, I'm letting you in on what happens between pastors, okay? Pastors be like, so how big is your church? It's a, it's a power. It's a status question. How important are you is basically what that question means. If you have a bigger church, you consider you have greater stature, you have greater power. And uh, the the foolishness of that, this is what Daniel said, why are you comparing? Maybe God has chosen in his sovereign and mysterious will. We have no way of knowing. He's decided, you know, Ben will have a church, have this kind of a church, Sam will have this kind of church, John will have this kind of a church. He decides. So, that, so there's no point in comparing. Uh, and so, it, again, we see Daniel here exhibiting what Paul, Paul later talks about in, in terms of the way he 
um, lives his life. So th this is from Galatians. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Remember what I said earlier. If you want to excel in your career, don't try to impress people. Don't when you don't don't live your life going to going to work trying to please people or trying to impress people. Go into work and, and consider your work to be a way that you honor God. Consider your job to be a way that you are worshiping God. Do your job to the best of your ability and be a kind and, and, and noble-hearted person and be loyal and be trustworthy and be loving. And chances are your career will take off, but not because you're trying to have a good career, but because you're trying to worship God through your job. That, that, that's how, that's how you, you get ahead, if that makes sense. So that's the challenge with Daniel and his, and his colleagues. You know, they, they want to kill him, so they come after him. So how do they come after him? Well, they know that Daniel is a person of uncompromising character. They, they know that he's beyond reproach. He, he does his job with excellence. The only way that they can get him is that if it has to do something with God, because they know that, that Daniel draws the line on God, that he will not compromise his faith in God. And so they come up with this crazy idea to try to um, trap him. And of course, Daniel hears that there's been this law that has been put in place that you can only pray to Darius for the next 30 days. So what is the very first thing that Daniel does about that? He goes and prays to God, of course. <laughs> so what, what else is he going to do? Daniel, that, that's what he always does. He always prays. He prays three times a day. This is a standard kind of prayer format for faithful Jews uh, in that time to pray morning, noon, and evening. Daniel's not going to do anything else. For Daniel, telling Daniel to not pray is like, it's like telling him not to breathe. It'd be, it'd be like telling him you can't drink water for 30 days. For, for Daniel, the idea that, um, that, that not praying to God and praying to Darius that, that's unthinkable because Daniel knows what every believer knows, which is that he was made for relationship with God and that who he is, is to be a son uh, of God, that, that his entire life and, and the only reason he's been able to get as far as he has is because of God, because God's gotten him through at every single point in the, in the past. So, so why would Daniel for, for one second compromise that? He, he can't do it. He can't do it. And so, uh, a good lesson for us all, you know, when we find ourselves in a time of trouble, and if there is something that threatens us, if there's something that comes against us in terms of our walk with God, what's the, the very first thing that we do? We go to God. We take it to God. I think that the, the tragedy, if we're honest, is that here we have Daniel risking his life to pray. And we live in a, in a time in a country where you can pray as much as you want. There's total freedom. And yet, I think so few people really appreciate prayer and really even take the time to prayer. Right? Daniel's life was threatened if he prays, and yet he goes and does it. We have no threats, and yet, so you know, many Christians don't even spend only two minutes a day in prayer. Right? It's really, it's really a travesty. And I, I think it goes to show us that um, maybe our lives are, are too easy, and, and and sometimes that there isn't a threat. I know that when I when I am going through a tough time and when I'm going through a trial of some sort. That's when my prayer life is at its, is at, at its richest and most um, vital and most vibrant is when I really need God's help. Maybe I'm sure you know many of you have experienced a similar a similar thing. 
So I'm not pray, I'm not saying that we should you know pray for things to get harder. God forbid things are hard enough as they are. But um, just remember, you know, people were giving their lives to be able to pray, to pray to God. We're made for prayer. So maybe even when things are good, maybe even when we're comfortable, we ought to embrace prayer as our lifeline, as our um, our connection to God, our source of energy and strength to be able to to do in life um, what we need, what God calls us to do. So that brings us um, to the next part where um, Daniel is going to be thrown into the lion's den. Now, I was reading the commentary, and what they explain is that this is called a trial by ordeal. And a trial by ordeal is a situation, this was practiced in the ancient world, where we put a person through some sort of extreme situation, usually involving pain, suffering, and if they survive, then they are decreed by the gods to be not guilty. But if they die... Uh, then, then they're considered to have been guilty. So there's different kinds of trial by ordeal in the ancient world. Um, one of the one of the things that, that maybe you've heard of is trial by combat. So trial by combat is we have two parties and we don't know who the guilty party is. So we give them swords and we let them cl- clobber each other. And whoever comes out victorious in the end is the one that is vindicated by the gods. And whoever whoever dies, unfortunately, we consider that person to be condemned. So the commentaries it, they they say that it's very it's very clear that kind of what is happening here is a trial by ordeal. Daniel has been thrown into the lion's den. He's been accused of sedition against Darius, and the question is, will he survive? And so Darius, who loves Daniel, who who regretted, he very much regretted the fact that Daniel had to be thrown into the lion's den, but nevertheless, they throw him into the den, which, by the way, is kind of like a tomb. He seals the tomb, and then Nebuchadnezzar, or sorry, Darius is so upset, so grieved by what has happened that he's like, no YouTube for me tonight, no Netflix, uh, no entertainment, uh, and, and it even um, you know the fact that he's not eating, he's fasting. That, that's my guess, and he's fasting and praying all night long for Daniel because he loved Daniel so so much. And he says, when he puts him down into the dead, he says, "May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you from the mouth of the lions." And so it's very clear in the passage that this is a kind of test. This is a test, and what is at stake? Daniel has put all his chips in the God basket, all of them. He's risked everything. And the question now is, can God deliver? Will God deliver Daniel? And we all know how the story goes, that God does. Uh, God delivers him. So Nebuchadnezzar wakes up the next morning, he's excited, he jumps in, Daniel, are you okay? Daniel's alive, he's unharmed, they drag him out. And, um, and Daniel immediately gives credit to God. This interesting thing about Daniel is Daniel doesn't have to go around sharing his faith. He doesn't have to go around evangelizing people. The opportunities always come to him. He just he just says it like it is. He says what happened. Angel came, delivered me. There's there's not a hair on me. I'm completely unharmed. And then he he makes the claim that the fact that he has survived this ordeal vindicates him. The fact that the lions uh, did not touch him shows that he is innocent. That he never, even though he drew a hard line when it came to worship, he never for one second was disloyal to Darius. And Darius should trust him and recognize that that he is completely faithful. Uh, But it also shows the incredible power of God. Daniel put everything on the line because he trusted God and he believed in God. And in the story, God saves him. God vindicates Daniel, but God also shows his incredible power uh, over even hungry lions. So Darius, of course, is extremely mad. 
he's mad that these other advisors came and tried to trick him into killing Daniel. He understands that their motivations were self, self-oriented. So he goes, he gets the other governors, the other wise people, he throws them and their family into the lion's den. This is a little rated R today, I apologize. Glad there's no kids here today. So they and their wives, their children, it's terrible, I know. They, they are all thrown into the lion's den. And the text says that before they even hit the ground, those lions are all over them. Okay. Now, I realize it's harsh, but again, this is a, this is a trial by ordeal. What's the message? The message is very clear. Daniel wins, they lose. God delivered Daniel and vindicated Daniel. So, so Daniel is justified in the end. But the advisors who, who were trying to get him into trouble, they're, they're, um, they're, they don't survive the trial. So they're declared guilty at the end. And I realized that you know this idea of like throwing families into lion's den sounds pretty terrible. It is terrible. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty horrible. But, 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 you got to consider the original context that Daniel was written. The book of Daniel was written to Jewish exiles living in Babylon. There are people who've been stripped from their homeland. There are people whose homes and country have been burned. Their, their children, relatives have been killed, and they've been dragged away as slaves to Babylon. So the message of Daniel is crystal clear. Daniel's written to people who are living in exile and as slaves to the Babylonians and later to the Persians and the Medes. He's living, he's talking to people who, who are on the brink of losing all hope. He's talking to people who, who maybe they think that God has completely abandoned us and forgotten about us and destroyed our homeland and we have no hope, we have no future. And Daniel says, no, there's hope. That God's still in, in control. He's still watching over us. He still cares about us. And that if there comes a point where you think, should we just let it go and be done with God and move on because the past is the past and God doesn't have a plan for us, that if you ever face that question, no, it is always worth it. It is always the best to stay true to God because God is there. He has not forgotten about you. And no matter what the situation seems like, God is still in control. So, friends, this must have been extremely, extremely comforting words for uh, the Israelites to hear. But I guarantee you that this is even more comforting for us. It's more comforting for us because of what the true Daniel is. And here's the interesting thing, is that the parallels and the connections between Daniel and between Jesus. There are a lot of connections. Daniel was thrown into a den, right? Jesus was thrown into a tomb. Daniel was falsely accused, and Jesus was also falsely accused. Both had to withstand a a trial by ordeal. Daniel had to go through the trial by uh, lions, the lion den, and Jesus went through the trial of the crucifixion. Both were convicted, both were sentenced, but here's the difference between the two. That in the end, really, Daniel's suffering was relatively minor. He came out, he was only in there for one night, first of all. And uh, he came out unscathed. When Daniel came out, he had no scars because he hadn't been touched in any way. But Jesus' suffering was much greater. Jesus suffered uh, physically, he suffered spiritually, he suffered emotionally. Welcome, everybody. Good to have uh, people coming in. 
Jesus was the one who suffered great. He suffered greater than Daniel. He went further and he accomplished a lot more than Daniel. God showed Darius that Daniel was innocent, right? His trial by ordeal, the end result was that Daniel was declared innocent. But here's the interesting thing about Jesus's trial by crucifixion is that in his death and in his resurrection, he won innocence for all those who would put their faith in him. So let me read from you 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2. through 2. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's the good news of our salvation, is that Jesus Christ, he did what Daniel went through, but he went further, and he suffered more, and eventually he gave up his life but he was completely innocent. He had done no wrong. Um, unlike Daniel, who was only in the tomb for one day, right? Jesus did in fact die. He died. And why would an innocent person have to suffer? Why would an innocent person have to die? And the scripture teaches that the reason he died was to be an atoning sacrifice for us. And so the good news, and this is why we celebrate Christmas, and this is why we proclaim the gospel at every worship service, is that through Jesus Christ, we can be declared innocent in the eyes of God. Jesus Christ went through the ordeal of suffering in order that you and I would never have to. Even though we're the guilty party, he suffered on our behalf. He suffered in our place. Jesus Christ died. He experienced suffering. He experienced rejection so that we could be saved by his grace and by his love. And all we would have to do is acknowledge our faith in him and confess our sins. And then Jesus is suffering his ordeal by which he was always innocent, but by his ordeal, we too are declared innocent in the eyes of God. So it's interesting when you think about it, and I'll, I'll close with this, that um, God used Daniel in order to reveal his grace and to reveal his power uh, to, to King Darius. And so Darius, after, you know, after this has happened, he is so impressed that he too worships God and he acknowledges God and he uh, makes a proclamation to the whole world that everybody should acknowledge this God and, um, and, and worship this God as well. So it's interesting that in Daniel that we see a, a Jew suffering for God. But in Jesus, we see God suffering for the Jews and suffering for us. The message of the gospel is that God himself, he loves us so much and he cares for us so much that he was willing to come into this world um, and to give up his life as a sacrifice for us. And so we are going into a season, I think, um, in this coming year where there is a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot that we don't know. COVID is raging on and uh, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of concern about the future and about what this will mean for us. But Daniel's message and the message of the gospel is that despite what things may seem like, despite the chaos that is in the world, that we have a God who cares. We have a God who is in control. And we have a God who loves us so much that he would come into the world and suffer on our behalf. And so I encourage you today um, to receive that and to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Say, yes, I believe. I believe that Jesus came into this world. I believe he died for me. And I believe that he suffered this ordeal. He went through it so that I wouldn't have to. 
so that I could be accepted um, and forgiven by God and received into his kingdom. And I hope that in the midst of the uncertainty that we face, that we never lose confidence, that despite what things may seem like, we still have a God who, who cares, a God who's in control, a God who has this. He has this world and he has your life in the palm of his hands. And he will take care of us. He will deliver us. And he will get us through this tough time and see us through to better times as well, ultimately through eternal life. So let's pray. And, um, and after that, we'll invite up, uh, Diane to commission her. So Lord God, we pray that, um, that we would recognize just how, how Daniel does point us towards Christ. And Daniel did suffer, Lord, but it was nothing compared to what you went through, the ordeal that you went through through crucifixion. And Jesus, we see that you are master of death. You, you overpowered death. You overpowered death by being risen on the third day. You overpowered the cross. And so if that's true, Lord, then that means that there's really nothing in this world that can't be um, healed by you. There's nothing in this world that can stand against you or your kingdom. That you have full control. That you are the master. You are the master. So Lord, I pray that today, by the power of your spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, that each one of us uh, feels encouraged, that each one of us knows your love on a deeper level, that each one of us has a greater measure of faith and confidence in you, knowing that despite how we sometimes feel and despite the chaos of our lives and of this world, that you remain good and you are in control of all things and you will take care of us. So God, we put our faith and our trust in you this morning. We acknowledge that we have sinned, that we are not innocent. Christ was innocent, but we're not. And yet, through Jesus' sacrifice, we can be made righteous in your eyes. And so we thank you for that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.